Welcome back to the Better Boundaries podcast, sponsored by Utahns for a Responsive Government. I'm Kyle Fryant, Deputy Director of Better Boundaries. On July 11th of this year, the Utah Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case contesting gerrymandered congressional maps. The plaintiffs in the case also challenged the 2020 repeal of Proposition 4, which established an independent commission and nonpartisan redistricting criteria for the state. They claimed that the repeal was a direct violation of the Utah State Constitution's right of the people to reform or alter their government through citizen initiatives. Shortly after the case was heard, the court asked for supplemental briefing related to the Proposition 4 claim. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Troy Boer, who is a seasoned appellate attorney who has lent his time and expertise in supporting this important litigation. Troy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Troy, I want to just take a step back real quick before really digging into the substance of the supplemental briefing and ask, how did you decide to get involved in this litigation? Why redistricting? Well, we actually were initially involved, Fred Voros and I, Fred Voros is also an attorney here at Zimmerman Boer, helped with the drafting to some extent of Proposition 4 and some of the strategy Um, going into how that was drafted. And so we really were involved from the inception and then obviously were as upset as anyone working on it when uh, the legislature decided to alter it and basically frustrate its purpose with the amendments that they made in the new statute. And so it wasn't a horribly difficult decision for our law firm, given our earlier involvement to also want to help out with the litigation. Well, I know that so many people appreciate your expertise and involvement, both at the inception of Prop 4 and now. So let's really dig deep into the supplemental briefing order. Uh, And just for our listeners, could you describe what a supplemental briefing order is and how common they are in appellate practice? Yeah, a supplemental briefing order is when the court still has some lingering questions after they've read all the briefs and after they've heard the oral argument. Often there are questions that arise during the oral argument that are maybe have a new spin or look a little bit different than the parties were conceiving of the issues when they were briefing it. And the court thinks that they don't want to go back and try to answer this question on their own when the parties couldn't help them out because they weren't ready for it. So they'll issue a supplemental briefing order like we got. Um, they're, They're not that uncommon in Utah. I think we have a pretty practical court that whenever they think they could use some additional help, they're happy to ask for it through supplemental briefing orders. And ours basically is asking us to help them to address some issues that they didn't feel completely competent to go back and answer or just wanted the parties to have the opportunity to weigh in so they felt heard before the court went back to answer those on its own. And just building off of that, what were those issues that the court uh, wanted to get resolved before they could decide on this case? Yeah, so so the court asked for supplemental briefing on really what the substance and meaning and effect of Article One, Section 2 is in the Utah Constitution. And Article One, Section 2 um, declares that all political power is inherent in the people. And then it goes on to say that all free governments are founded 
on the people's authority and their for their equal protection and benefit. And then this last clause is really the operative one that the court's interested in here. It says, and they, meaning the people, have the right to alter and reform their government as the public welfare may require. And so the court wants to know what to do with that constitutional provision and how it relates to Prop 4, because Prop 4, arguably, and at least it looks like maybe in the court's view, is an attempt by the people to alter or reform the nature of their government, specifically concerning how redistricting is done in the state of Utah. And so the court asked the parties to answer three related questions. And the court had a couple of assumptions built into those three questions. So one assumption was that Article One, Section 2 the right to alter and reform government is a fundamental right. And number two, that the people exercise that right when they enacted Proposition 4. And assuming those two things, the court asked the parties to answer, should a level of scrutiny apply to determining whether the statute that altered Proposition 4 violated the people's right to alter and reform their government? And just to unpack that first question, a level of scrutiny is really just a, a hurdle that legislation has to clear when it butts up against a constitutional right. So maybe one of the easier ways to explain that is that if the government restricts where people can speak and exercise free speech rights, and they just say you can't exercise free speech rights at this location, you know, between the hours of 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. And they do that because they don't want it to be noisy there during that time period. That's a restriction that doesn't say we're silencing you because of your political view or the content or anything like that. So the hurdle is fairly low for the government to be able to infringe on that free speech right, because it does in a minimal way. You can't speak during those hours in that location. But if the government says, well, Republicans can come and speak at this location, but Democrats can't, well, now you've got an infringement of free speech that goes to the viewpoint of the speaker. And so the hurdle that that legislation would have to clear is really the highest one. And it would require a compelling state interest government and basically, it almost always would fail, which is why that gets struck down. The hurdle and the height of that hurdle is just called a level of scrutiny. That's what it's called in and how courts use that phrase. So the court is asking whether whether there's a hurdle that the government has to clear when it amended basically Proposition 4. So that's question one. Question two is, if that's true, then what level of scrutiny should apply? Is it a high hurdle? Is it a low hurdle? Is it an intermediate hurdle? That's the question. That's the second question that they asked. And then question three is, should the level of scrutiny vary based upon the nature of the changes to Proposition 4 that the plaintiffs challenge? And so this is sort of getting at my example before. Um, one level of scrutiny applies to saying no one with any viewpoint can come and speak in this location between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. And a different level of scrutiny applies to a law that says no Democrats can come and speak 
at this location. And so the court is asking with question three, should a high hurdle apply to some of the changes that the legislature made and maybe a lower hurdle apply to some other changes that the legislature made? And those are the three questions they asked the parties to address. So at that point, both the legislature and the plaintiffs had less than a month to put together supplemental briefs. Um, I'm curious from your experience is, as an appellate attorney, is that a, a usual turning uh, turnaround time or what is the turnaround time usually and what was it like trying to put together that uh, res- that supplemental brief in such a short amount of time? Well, it's not it's not an unusual amount of time, although, you know, in in most cases, the courts leave the parties, they will put a date in there that they want the supplemental briefing. But if the parties want to take longer, then the court will go along with that. You know, in this case, there's a sense in which time is of the essence and that it, you know, favors one side, the government um, delays favor one side and um, going quickly is really what the the plaintiffs want in this case. And so I think the court's kind of sensitive to that. And so they provided kind of a reasonable amount of time that they thought everyone could address it. And in fact, everyone was able to address it. So it it was shorter than usual, but it makes sense in this context why they did that. So let's talk about the substance. You talked about the questions that the justices gave. Let's first talk about the legislature's response brief. What were their answers to those questions in their brief? They basically don't think that a level of scrutiny really should apply or that it should be the absolute lowest hurdle um, that there is for a level of scrutiny. And they think that they obviously want it to be low because the lower the level of scrutiny is, the more likely it is that their changes will not be found to be unconstitutional. And their basic reasoning for that is, is not surprising. It's similar to what they've said in their other briefing. They think of Article One, Section 2, to some extent, as just aspirational rather than setting forth a fundamental right. And they interpret it to be saying something as simple as, well, of course, the people have the right to reform their government. Look later in the Constitution. They have the right to amend the Constitution itself. And that's really all that means. It's not something that applies when when the citizens initiate legislation as opposed to altering the constitution. And so they don't think that article one, section two really applies in this context, but if it does apply because it doesn't directly and expressly apply, then the the government tends to think that it's the lowest hurdle and they can easily clear the lowest hurdle because all legislation has to clear that hurdle and, and it's really pretty easy for them to do so. Um, they don't, I, you know, I think that the, if I could summarize what the government's position would be in reality is that they really don't like the two assumptions that are packed into the questions. They don't like the assumption that article one, section two is a fundamental right. And they don't like the assumption that the people actually exercise that right when they enacted proposition four. And so because they disagree with those assumptions, it paints how they answer the question. And, and they just think it should be the lowest bar and that it, therefore it was easily cleared here. 
I'm going to make my own assumption and assume that the plaintiffs uh, agreed with those assumptions. Uh, can you tell us more about the plaintiffs' answers to those questions? Yeah, so the the plaintiffs think, number one, that this is not aspirational or just talking about reforming the Constitution. And it shouldn't be interpreted to only pertain to re uh, amending the Constitution because to amend the Constitution, that has to start in the legislature. And it would be kind of odd <laughs> to say that you've got a one constitutional provision that is in essence, a check on the legislature, and the people can exercise it only if the legislature tells them they can. Uh, so it really work in in our view. And, you know, we also look to Article 1, Section 26, which is just another provision in the Constitution that really is a provision telling courts and citizens and the government how the Constitution is to be interpreted. And it basically says that all the provisions in the Constitution are mandatory and prohibitory. So what that says is you don't read the language in the Constitution unless you absolutely have to, to be aspirational. You try to give it meaning and to interpret it to be enforceable. So we think that Article One, Section 2 is enforceable and that it does give the people the right to alter and reform government. And it should be read in conjunction with the right to alter and reform government through initiating legislation in Article 4. And it doesn't mean that all initiatives are beyond the reach of the legislature to amend later if they turn out outdated. All the court's asking right now is for certain types of initiatives, namely those that fall into the bucket of altering and reforming government, whether those have special protection because the citizens exercising their right to reform government under Article 1, Section 2. We obviously think that's what's happening with Proposition 4. So that's a way of saying that we, you know, completely agree with the assumptions in the court's questions. And because we do, we think that amending Proposition 4, when the legislature does that, the legislature is the entity that's supposed to be checked by the people in these circumstances, that when the legislature doesn't like being checked, like no one would, um, and they go ahead and amend Proposition 4, we think that that obviously infringes on the fundamental right to alter and reform government. And because of that, we think a level of scrutiny absolutely applies. And we think it's heightened scrutiny, which is just to say that it's one of the higher hurdles, if not the highest, that government has to clear when they're going to infringe on constitutional rights. And then question three really is where, um, where the meat of the argument kind of comes in, because the court's saying, well, doesn't the level of scrutiny vary depending upon the particular changes? And our answer has to be, well, yes, because, you know, if there's a misplaced comma or um, you know, words misspelled, which seems very unlikely given the initiative process. But you can imagine there are certain changes that would not undermine the purpose of the initiative or the government reform, but they would facilitate. Um, it might be that actually we're going to go along with what the people have said. We're not trying to frustrate their purpose. 
but we think this can be done even better. And there's amendments that facilitate that purpose and make it even better. We think those sort of changes should only have to clear a low hurdle. But we think changes that try to frustrate the government reform that the people have been trying to implement, in this case with Proposition 4, those sort of changes that frustrate that purpose, that those should have to clear heightened scrutiny or the higher hurdle. And these changes can't clear that hurdle here because those high hurdles are very difficult to clear um, for, for good reason, because they infringe on fundamental rights. So it's really interesting to hear what the briefs say. Now let's talk about in practice, fast forwarding, and the court adopts either of these two positions what that would do. Let's first start with the legislature. Practically, if the court were to adopt in whole or part what the legislature is saying, what would that mean for citizen initiatives for their repeal and their amendment going forward? So if the if the government's position is adopted by the Supreme Court, then it essentially means that citizen initiatives have the exact same status, no matter their content or importance, or relationship with other constitutional rights, like reforming government, that those initiatives would have the exact same status as statutes enacted by the legislature the year before. So one legislature through statutes cannot bind next year's legislature. Next year's legislature can decide that whatever they enacted the year before is a bad idea. They can amend it. They can repeal it. They can do whatever they want with it. It's just another piece of legislation, and the current legislature gets to decide what to do with it. And so if citizen initiatives have the exact same status as prior legislation, then that means that five minutes after they go into effect, there can be a special session if one's needed, and the legislature can repeal it and amend it, they can do whatever they want with it. So if, if, the, uh, if the Supreme Court adopts the government's position here, then what that means is that their amendments to Proposition 4 were not unconstitutional, most likely. And our other constitutional arguments that aren't part of this supplemental briefing order as to why the redistricting is adopted violates different provisions of the Constitution. Those can still be in play, but as far as the argument that the uh, amendments that gutted Proposition 4 are unconstitutional, those would probably be earmarked for a loss if uh, the Supreme Court adopts the state's position. So that's what will happen if, if the court were to adopt the state's position. Now, in this, uh, in this other world in which the plaintiff's position is adopted, what would that mean both for the Prop 4 claim here and for citizen initiatives going forward? Yeah, so if the court came out with an opinion adopting the plaintiff's position, then almost certainly many of the provisions of uh, the amendments to Prop 4 and the statute that amended Prop 4 would be um, basically telegraphed to be unconstitutional. So because of the unusual procedural posture here, I don't think the court would go ahead and declare them unconstitutional because what's happened is our Prop 4 claims were dismissed by the district court. So we have appealed that dismissal. 
And so the court would really just be reinstating our claims that um, amendments to Prop 4 were unconstitutional, and it would go back down to the district court. But if in doing that, the Supreme Court adopted the plaintiff's position, then it would basically be telling the district court, not only do you reinstate these, but you analyze it through our opinion. And when you do so, those changes to Prop 4 through the statutes are almost certainly going to be held to be unconstitutional. So once that happens, which will take a while because we'll have to get an opinion and we'll have to go back down to the district court and we'll have to have the district court go ahead and apply the opinion and declare certain amendments to be unconstitutional, those that frustrate the purpose, um, then what would happen at that point is that that would revive Proposition 4. And Proposition 4, with its private right of action to challenge any redistricting map that took into consideration, say, favoring one political party over another or protecting incumbents or all of the other things that are in Prop 4, now that private right of action would be revived because the legislature's repeal of it would have been declared unconstitutional. So believe it or not, at that point, we would have to file a new complaint or an amended complaint in this lawsuit, exercising that private right to challenge the redistricting maps under Proposition 4, which would now still would now be the law because it would not have been amended. And in that challenge, we would seek to invalidate those redistricting maps and send them back to reconsider drawing those maps and doing so in compliance with all of the standards that the people um, said that they wanted in voting for Proposition 4. It's really interesting to hear kind of these two different worlds, one in which citizen initiatives are respected and actually have some teeth, and one in which the legislature can, like you said, in five minutes, call themselves into special session and completely discard the work of volunteers and hundreds of thousands of votes. It's really kind of a very different set of circumstances that would transpire uh, under each of these arguments. One last question for you, Troy, that we get quite often is this litigation has been going on for quite a while. And not everyone who's a Better Boundary supporter is uh, well-versed in or in the law or an attorney. So how would you recommend people following this case uh, continue to stay updated and informed uh, in ways that they can understand what's going on? I think, you know, podcasts like this are obviously fantastic ways to stay informed. Um, you know, fortunately, this is an easy piece of litigation to follow because the press is very interested in it. And so there are lots of, um, there's lots of news coverage that people can follow. I assume that there are national blogs on redistricting. I don't have any, you know, to pass along right now, but people who are interested in redistricting nationally may from time to time chime in on what's going in, on in Utah and we'll be talking about other states. Certainly, you can pull up the briefs, you can call the courts to figure out how, and you can get publicly available documents that are filed. If you really are having trouble sleeping, then I think that's the way that you wanna to try to stay informed and try to understand the arguments that are going on there. If you look at the summaries that the parties put into their papers they file in court, sometimes that'll give you an idea of what's going on. But 
but really, I think all of the things that people probably already know about are the best ways to stay apprised of what's going on. Well, Troy, really appreciate your time today. And as was mentioned, those briefs, uh, copies of them can be found at betterboundaries.org. We're constantly updating it with new filings for those who are interested in seeing the arguments that are being advanced. And of course, here on the podcast and through our email list, we'll continue to keep everyone informed on the developments in this really exciting litigation. Uh, so once again, Troy, thank you so much for your time, for the effort you and your team and the entire team of plaintiff's attorneys have done in putting together this supplemental briefing, as well as so many other parts of this really momentous lawsuit. And thank you to all, all of our listeners who support Better Boundaries. Once again, you can go to betterboundaries.org to donate or learn more about our work and about the work of the plaintiffs to bring independent nonpartisan redistricting criteria to Utah. Thank you for, uh, for the discussion. I really enjoyed it. 